Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, poet and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This is going to be episode 144 of the Classic Spotlight series, Thoughts on Charles Bukowski. Yes, I know, people have been waiting for this for a while now. Been talking about it probably for about a month. Been wanting to do it for quite some time. It just, I wanted it to, to be towards the, towards the end of, of that long line of uh classic authors that I had done uh, of where I had more of an affinity to because I, I knew more about them and there was more I can really talk and and explain or even instruct about them as much as uh, Charles Bukowski where it actually required a little bit more research even though I'm familiar with a lot of his works I've read them since I was a, a young person but he was never really on my on my list of, of the big writers that inspired me or moved me or you know, even instructed me in certain ways. Uh, he, obviously, he's a certain uh, taste or a certain category that you might be interested in, or others might just be interested in just because of the whole Hollywoodization of, of Bukowski, and we'll talk about that as well. But and, and this is not to put him down at all. It's just a matter of, of, of taste and, and what you might be interested in. But a lot of people interested in him in general, even if they don't know a lot about him. And that's one of the reasons for the show as well, is... Just to, to explain a bit about himself and his life and, and some of his work and, and try to get some interesting facts out there and some knowledge that people won't know about. And that's really why we'd want to do this. Not only because he is terribly interesting and he is a very good writer. He deserves to be talked about. But I like him to be talked about in an artistic manner rather than, you know, every other time he was thrown up and vomiting in your living room or something. Because unfortunately he had a, a history and a record of that too. So we really want to be able to put all warts and all, as I used to say, uh, in, in this sort of uh, subject matter. Because it, it gives the, the fairest treatment for everybody involved. Even though he's no longer with us, it, it's still fair to him as well. Not just uh, those that, that listen or, or love him or those that, you know, we got some folks out there that really don't like him at all. And, and I, I think, ironically... The people who don't like Bukowski have the same uh, misconceptions than the people that uh, totally love him. They both have issues that we'll try to talk about in the show and see if maybe we can help them clear that up as well. Maybe I don't change anybody's minds. That's fine. But the important thing is that the information and the research is accurate and, and, and that we get together uh, an artistic profile uh, of uh, a real mover and shaker in, in the arts. All right, so let's start off with, and I like in this particular case to start off in the very beginning because there's so many different things about this guy that more people are not really aware of. And, and also, and, and, and sometimes you have to get down to the nuts and bolts to kind of help you have a better perspective of who we're talking about. You didn't have to do that as much with some writers, but in this one, I really think it's necessary. Okay. I think literally we'll start off with his nationality and, 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 his, and, and his name. I mean, literally we can go from there. He was actually born in Andernach, Germany, 
Okay, uh, the 16th of August of uh, 1920. So it's only been a couple weeks ago that uh, we have uh, celebrated uh, the 100th year of his birth. And there's a lot of uh, internet parties and, you know, all kinds of different uh, artistic celebrations throughout the, even Germany and, and in the United States and a few other places. Although I have to imagine that uh, with COVID, it's probably not such an easy thing to get lots of people together, you know, in, in a real sense versus a virtual one. Maybe next year or in the future, maybe that can go about in a different way, and they could kind of do it in a, you know, a, a a a better fashion than what's being done right now, which is more abbreviated and more safety conscious. I got that. All right, so he's born in Antonach, Germany. Okay, sixteenth of uh, August, uh, nineteen twenty. Okay, he's born Heinrich Karl Bukowski. Okay, uh, if you know anything about German, Heinrich is pretty much Henry, and and Karl is always Charles. So um, his name has been Americanized, but that's when he was actually born. And then if you could tell, for whatever reason or not, he used the Henry in a lot of his pen names that he did on some, uh, some of his characters, but uh, he always called himself and referred to himself as Charles Bukowski, which is how he's also uh, referred to, you know, for his fans and, and even, uh, of course, in his writing. It's still his name. It's just not his entire given name. But, you know, it's his middle name and nothing wrong with it. He, he's not really... You know, hiding away from it. Um, he's considered by many in the artistic world, and, and probably by many people who actually, uh, you know, um, read him and admire him as the laureate of the American lowlife. And I'm sure they mean that in a positive way. They're not really trying to say that, uh, you know, the people he was talking about or he's writing about are lowlifes in that kind of a way. But, you know, they're the people, of course, that the occupier. The, the lower rungs, if not society, uh, at least of behavior. I mean, you, you really can't give, you know, medals and, you know, and awards and, and salutes to people that, are, you know, are constantly abusing alcohol or spending all of their money, uh, including rent money on, you know, gambling for horses or, you know, chasing prostitutes all day and night, night long or using drugs. Well, that's a lot of the life uh, that, uh, that attracted him. And ironically, some of the life that attracted him in his writing, he didn't actually live himself. And we'll talk about it on the show, but you'll find that quite surprising in, in many aspects of him. And, and not that he was a hypocrite because this guy never was. He was actually a straight shooter about a lot of the stuff he's talking about and writing about. It just doesn't mean that he always participated in it. So writing about it and participating in it are two different things. And there is an unusual separation there that it, people just don't realize. You know, they might have thought he was everything he wrote about, and he wasn't. He was a lot of it, and uh, he sympathized with a lot of it, and maybe even empathized with a lot of it, but he wasn't all of it. And I don't think it would be possible to be as specific as he was, and maybe he wound up starting in lot later in life, and we'll talk about it as well. So let's go down with some real basics uh, of some of his uh, basic uh, background, okay? Now... I caution you to understand that just because a person is writing uh, about, I guess you could say, the uh, the abused or neglected or just the people who are self-destructive, which is definitely the term I like to use when describing a lot of these kind of behaviors because that's what it is. I mean, it's always going to lead to some kind of self-destruction when you're constantly uh, you know, engaging in, in these uh, unhealthy habits. There's just no way to, to put that otherwise. And I don't really care what kind of politics we have even today as they speak, that's how it is. You can like it or not, but in the end, it's not something you're going to wish on a family member. 
And that's really how you know what kind of person you you, you are in relationship to this. Because if you do, then you got some other problems that we need to talk about on another show. Okay? All right. With that said, there's not always a direct line between somebody's background and how they want to identify in, in terms of what they were writing about. There's some relationship there is and, and makes some sense and you'll see it, but it's not always a perfect thing. So you really can't, you know, it can't really give you a full picture. It's a good idea, though, about, you know, the kind of person you're dealing with is not that unusual, I, I find anyway. Uh, from my experience on, on doing these kind of examinations and this and, and generally in, in life, okay? All right, so we know, and I'm, I'm always disappointed, and I've written a few places about this, that Charles Bukowski is not on the list of authors that uh, was dealing with depression and, and dealing with various forms of mental illness, because he definitely was. And why he's not on the list, uh, to me, I think it has something to do with Possibly prejudice or, or snobbery because he deserves to be on that list. He deserves to be on on the higher rung of, of, of authors that we would speak about, especially if they're in, in the neighborhood of, you know, uh, fiction and, and, and poetry. But oftentimes you'll notice that people on that list, especially ones that I read off, uh, that there tends to be the more accepted established figures. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but, you know, you got to include others as well. And I also give a, a, a nod to the beat poets of which... Um, We'll talk about this. Uh, Bukowski is not considered a formal member, but rather an honorary one. But none of them are listed either. And at least uh, we know for sure that uh, Kerouac and uh, Burroughs had uh, depression issues. Not Ginsburger, though. Um, but, and they're not even mentioned. So, uh, again, you have a, a group of writers that don't even mention that, and that sort of thing. And I really think it has to do with slighting them more than anything else. Hopefully, as we go along, we can see more of that. Because they, they definitely deserve a, a, a proper recognition. And again, I'm not even a fan of any of this writing, including Vukowski. Uh, uh, I mean, I am on an artistic basis, but not on a personal reading basis. But still, you know, let's not slight them just because we got, uh, you know, illusions of, you know, one's better than the other or one deserves this and the other one doesn't deserve that. Doesn't make any doesn't make any sense. Now, unlike a lot of writers, unfortunately, um, Bukowski went through a very abusive um, childhood. Um, he had a father that beat him literally with, 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 a, with a rod, a metal rod and a stick. I mean, in, in a horrible fashion. It's just un unbelievable that, you know, this sort of treatment went on. Um, he was pretty much a, a loner and an outcast when he grew up and as a teenager. He uh, confessed himself that um, he had a severe case of acne that took years to go away. And that didn't really help his, already his shyness and, uh, I know, when you say shyness and you say Charles Bukowski in the same sentence, it's like, what? But we're talking about you know, when he's grown up and not become the person he became. Um, so he had to deal with a lot of that. So you put all that together and, you know, it makes to be a, a very um, a very uh, abused and, and, and uh, conflicted and, and certainly, um, you know, introverted person there for, for quite some time. Um, they, they were relatively poor as my father worked a lot, but also had a, a, a serious drinking problem. Um, they did have a lot of blue cares uh, and blue uh, collar values, which he definitely describes and, and seems to practice in many issues in his life and in his writing. Okay. Um, but for quite some time when he started the writing, which was around the age of 24, he was able to get a, a story published. There was a point there where he had stopped because of all the drinking that he wound up getting involved in. For, for nearly 10 years. Um, 
So he's drinking heavily, working all kinds of odd jobs himself, okay? And then he, uh, he winds up having an attack of an ulcer, a, a, a bleeding ulcer that was so bad and such an internal hemorrhage that he almost died. It was almost fatal. He went to the hospital, and at the age of 35, that's when he started re-engaging into writing, especially into poetry. He never stopped until he died from that point on. It just, you know, it pushed him or, or struck something in him that he, uh, he didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, die or live that kind of a life anymore. Um, so how is it that a man who nearly drank himself to death by 35 comes back to be a, a, a prolific writer and, and somebody that still is engaging in this lifestyle? Well, <laughs> there's only one way to explain that. Because there's no way you can physically guard yourself, especially in, in those days and times with their technology versus now. Uh, which we don't really have that much to do with on bleeding ulcers. You, you, you have a, you can have a, you can have a surgery. They could find out a, a way to, um, I think, uh, find an exact antibody because you know the ulcer is really a bacteria that's in there. It's not really just a hole in your stomach. It's actually a bacteria causing that. They can they can link it up. They can give you antibiotic and you can actually get rid of it. But they didn't have that back for him. So what did he do otherwise? Well, it, it's obvious what he did. As much as he paraded around in photographs about him drinking all the time, as much as he talked about it, as much as he did, and, and as much as that, you know, um, he, he praised it in, in so many aspects, it's quite obvious that the only way this man could have lived his life and still been functional enough to get writing done, just like Poe, he didn't engage in it as much as he claimed or as much as it was been put onto him as being such a drunk. He obviously had to figure out a way to moderate it so that he didn't re-engage that ulcer again or happen to keep going to the hospital. There's never been a, another reported case of him going back there for the same thing. And we know a great deal about his, about his health and about his uh, physical well-being and his, his whereabouts and all of that. It's pretty much a matter of, of public record. So um, how is that the case? Well, that, that is the case. And I'm sure that goes to counter-narrative <laughs> to the, the story that he would want to put out or his publishers want to put out or his publicists want to put out or his fans would have put out, but that's the case. He probably ate and took care of himself in his stomach and, and the alcohol drinking. Probably He probably did it at a much more moderate rate than, than has ever been described. Now, don't get me wrong. This guy still had bouts of drunkenness. He still was throwing up all over the place. And, and making a public spectacle of himself, sometimes I think he's just doing it for public and publicity reasons. It just continued the persona and, you know, the image that, that he wanted to do. And it, it probably helped with his with his writing and pushing it as well. I, I know it's amazing because here's a man that literally said on a regular basis that, and he's in my list from a couple of episodes ago when we did one on alcoholism in the arts, uh, one of the few writers that ever said that he wrote when he was when he was drunk on a regular basis. And that to him it was okay. But as you can hear from what I just described and what he just said, there's going to be some disconnect. So I'm sure some of that, what he said was true, but it can't always be true. It's really, he just, I mean, because guess what? Bukowski uh, was a heavy drinker and he was definitely a, a person that was suffering the depression. We'll talk about that from his own admission. But here's the man that never really went to any kind of therapy, including Alcohol uh, Anonymous at all. Not even secretly, because we would know. There would be no secrets with this guy. It would be out there somehow. In fact, in almost any one of his interviews, he said something personal about his life. 
So he was not a man that was even that private, even though he claimed he was. He wasn't. Between his writing and his interviews <laughs> alone and, and, and the photographs, he allowed himself to get taken all over the place, which is for a reason, obviously. Um, not because he's not shy, just because it's a way for him to, you know, to record things and for prosperity's sakes and also for publicity's sakes. So even that statement, you have to question to a certain extent. Some of that was just simply continuing on the image of, uh, of glorifying that kind of lifestyle for both his writing and maybe for himself personally. And of course, it does help deflect you asking other questions because you're like, eh, that's just Charles doing his Charles thing. Might not always been the case. Now, he comes up with um, his first real book that caught on to people in 1963. It catches my heart in his hands. Strictly written about drunks, whores, and gamblers. Particularly when they lose lots of money at the horse track. <laughs> that kind of gambling. Okay? So, uh, does some of this involve himself? Yeah, you like gambling? Uh, yeah, um... He uh, had been known to, uh, you know, um, deal with prostitutes, although it is not as heavily as would have been advertised. We know more about his personal life, and he was more of a womanizer of people that he met at parties and, and possibly even fans at times or other people at, at social functions who weren't prostitutes. They might have been considered like what you would call in rock and roll groupies, but I always felt that there was a big difference between a prostitute and a groupie. Uh, maybe it's just because one is a transaction of business and a groupie really isn't. Nobody really pays a groupie. It's sort of like a, a free service. I'm not trying to be lewd here. I'm just trying to give a, a proper description. So if from that particular definition, uh, even though he's wrote and, and talked about them a lot, I don't really see him as a, a regular customer uh, of that kind of individual. In fact, as his fame grew and because of he was somebody that have a, did have a personality, he was a bit of a character, and for all that shyness, well, that certainly went away as he became more more of a character and a writer. Um, I don't think it was just necessary for him. He didn't really need to spend the money. Uh, he just didn't. Uh, but I don't really know, other than fame, why anyone would be attracted to him. If you saw some photographs of him, you know, and I'm a guy, and I'm a straight guy, so I, I can't give you all these wonderful, uh, you know, um, descriptions about who's supposed to be handsome, who's supposed to not be, because I can tell you I don't really know. But I can tell you on a general basis, you know, I, I don't I don't think he was a Frankenstein-looking fellow, but I can't really see that, you know, he was somebody that was, uh, you know, looking like some kind of a male model either. <sighs> Got me. Some of the photographs, he has a beer belly in him. I mean, but nevertheless, he attracted a lot of women. Some of them liked his direct style in terms of how he talked or how he lived or maybe even how he wrote. And maybe just some people that just like being around people that are considered a celebrity. Hard to know. But uh, it would help explain some of it, though, because otherwise I, I really can't see a guy uh, average looking like that, uh, you know, drinking a lot, you know, having, you know, women lined up around the block. That's, that's the only way to really think about how that would happen. I could be wrong, and you can email me, but uh, I'm thinking I'm, I'm generally in the right uh, area on that one, <laughs> okay? But that's how he starts off with. Boom, he, he comes out with that book. Now, Bukowski, unlike most writers, okay, um, even though he delved into novels, which later on became uh, movies by Hollywood, 
And even though he was a, 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 what he considered a fiction writer and wrote a lot of stories, uh, they were more of a pulp-type origin. They wasn't really classic flash fiction type of stories, okay? He still had that pulp feeling about him. In fact, in, in many instances, that, that really is Bukowski's style. That's what he came up with. It was a confessional style it was, and combined with like, like a pulp type of writing. So that's what made him so interesting and different for many people because there really wasn't anybody out there doing that kind of a combined style that he kind of created up his own way. And oftentimes, uh, ironically, when you think about the confessional school of writing, it was often mostly confined to women who can usually be more emotionally, I, I guess you can say, uh, connected to their own feelings than men do in, in a general basis. That's a pretty decent description of the genders. Uh, men emotionally detached and women more emotionally involved in their inner life because that tends to be the truth of those genders regardless of what politicians say. That's We all know that to be our basic experience. There's going to be exceptions, but I always like to talk about the standard rules of things. That's pretty standard. But Bukowski had a, a, almost a class for himself because here's a man completely telling you publicly to hell with um, emotions, to hell with um uh, sensitivity and feelings and hell with, uh, you know, uh, being a weak guy and I'm a macho guy, uh, yet uh, oftentimes uh, his writing is, is strictly uh, confessional in the sense that you're, you're feeling and, and learning a lot about his internal thoughts and his feelings and, 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 and the way he was viewing the world and the way the world sometimes was viewing him or maybe even hurting him or, or maybe how there are ways that he can help you from the world not hurting you because that was another part of his writing. He put a lot of that in there. But it was still a confessional style. And I think that because he didn't want to look sensitive or weak, so to speak, you know, which is, of course, silly today to think that way. But back in his day, you know, they still had that strong macho streak about things, you know. And I guess maybe as an Italian guy, we can have the same thing. But, you know, as a writer, I, I try not to engage too much in it uh, because I, I do find it a little silly. Um he mixed it with the Pope because, you know, the Pope was about the action and the adventure and, the, you know, the guy, you know, swinging in there to save the day and curse somebody out and stand up for, you know, his own rights and his own integrity and grab the girl and run away to the island or whatever. You know, that, that sort of thing, that, that whole macho adventurist, uh, you know, we're always right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> so he can mix those two together. And as you can see, it it might seem like a unique combination because nobody else was doing that sort of thing. But for him, as you learn more about the guy, it kind of makes sense for him. It might have been the only way he could go because I think being, him being a complex fellow, certain things make him complex because they have now melded together. But if you look at them in separate parts, you know, you're still looking at somebody that is sensitive uh, of being an abused person. And, and Bukowski was never the abuser. You never find this guy, you know, uh, screaming and, and, you know, crapping on fans or, or beating women up or, you know, uh, getting in fistfights all over the place and, you know, or, or trying to quickly destroy himself. You know, he, he lived to an older age and, and we'll talk about uh, his death and everything, but he didn't die from any of the ailments that he was talking about in his writing. Another irony we'll talk about as well. So... In many instances, some of his writing, without trying to sound too corny here or, or, or just too simplistic, 
was uh, an artistic kind of cry for help in, in, in some ways, you know, of him getting out his story and his message about who he was. So I just don't think that the kind of guy that he wanted to be and the kind of person that he was wasn't going to always be the same. So, and sometimes in, in some instances, both in writing and art and maybe in your personas, people, they just, they gird themselves for the protection of the world or maybe the protection of their own, you know, heart or feelings uh, to be the way they are, you know, to act tougher than they possibly could be in private. And we see plenty of glimpses of that in Bukowski. It's not something that normally is talked about because it's just so much fun and easy and sexy to talk about the, the drunk vomiting Bukowski or the, the guy that would give an interview and curse and smoke cigarettes or, the, you know, the guy that, uh, you know, do, would do a reading and, and in the middle of the reading just go off into another tangent on something else because something came to his mind, you know. When they say no filter, uh, you could pretty much say that uh, that described this man to a T in, in, in many, many instances. But also, the no filter wasn't just some uh, macho device, you know, protect his feelings. It also was him uh, dealing with his own, you know, uh, tragic uh, past and, and his own uh, con continually conflicted feelings about himself and the world and even the arts. So uh, that allowed us to, to learn certain truths about him that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. It would have been not easy because Bukowski, uh, to uh, uh, his credit in terms of telling the truth, um, literally died with no, with no friends. This is not to say that he had a thousand enemies all over the place because he had literally uh, hundreds of thousands of fans and lots of critics that even respected them as well as many that didn't. But he really didn't have anybody close to him per se like he would have said, a friend. He just didn't prefer that and we'll talk about that here now. Um, Bukowski, here's a man that's engaging into people and writing on a social basis who is claiming and who actually is practicing uh, a certain form of anti-socialism. I mean, he, he says it in many of his quotes. We'll get to those quotes later. And you can believe them because they're not just quotes of him just being macho. We'll be able to separate some of the truth from, from some of the stories and some of the reality from some of the fiction in the show. We're already starting to do that now. I think it's important to do that, not because we want to put this guy down. It's just it helps us understand better about who he was as a writer and maybe even some of his writings. When we put it in a better perspective, then you'll understand more about him. And I think that in many ways, if you're a fan, you might appreciate him more. If you're not a fan, you might want to just check him out. Just to, to say, maybe I got him wrong. Maybe I should check him out. And it's not my job to promote the guy. That's not what I'm trying to do. Even though in the end, the show is about him. But in, in a way, when I do these shows, I, I, I want them to be about us too. About certain elements we might see in that person, on that writer, or in that writing that maybe we can connect to, that maybe we can, you know, engage in. Or maybe that we see that we're like, maybe I should improve on that because I'm not sure about how that guy was doing it or that girl was doing it. That's a good thing, too, to do. And I'm hoping the show helps in that regard as well. So it becomes more multidimensional. Now, talking about Charles Bukowski... Many people consider him the cult, the countercultural icon, because many of the writers, you know, coming up in the the the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s were uh, uh, with that culture. But <laughs> this is so the ironic thing about this guy was, unlike the beat writers, you know, Bukowski and uh, excuse me, uh, Ginsburg and uh, and Burroughs and and Kurak, 
Ferengeti. Here's a, there's a few of them. I don't remember every single one of them, but um, they they wrote and they lived in, in that in that counterculture. That they were going into sit-ins. Some of them were part of protests. Some of them were using and experimenting drugs on purpose back then to get certain experiences. You know, a lot of them involved themselves in all those peace symbols and this, that, and even sometimes in the politics involved in those days. This guy wasn't. And this is the reason why they consider him an honorary beat and not an official beat because guess what? Bukowski really was antisocial in the sense that he would engage a fan. You know, this is the guy that said, I don't want to talk to people, but he published his phone number and people would call him on a regular basis and he would actually have conversations with them. I cannot tell you how many people I read in interviews that said, yeah, I talked to the guy. He was pretty charming. He was funny. He could, he could curse a lot, but not at me. And, and in the end, he actually tried to impart some kind of useful piece of wisdom about writing. I don't know if you want to call that a professional conversation, but it certainly wouldn't be considered antisocial. So apparently, as much as he said that, he definitely engaged in social behavior. He just didn't want to be around people on a regular basis. He didn't want to join a group like like a beat group. I don't even think he liked other writers. He had a very short list of writers that he even liked, and and most of them, they're either obscure names or you know, Dostoevsky, big deal. Uh, we all we all like that, that that guy, but he had a darker sense of nature, and, and so did you know Bukowski in a certain ways. So it's not even like unusual for him to to be interested in that guy and, and makes sense to me but there's no real clues to anything else like that in the end whether by design or accident if he wanted to be in a category by himself or in a class by himself he, he might have actually have achieved that no one was writing like him no one was talking like him and certainly nobody was behaving like him because again here is a man that appears to be involved in self-destructive behavior but he never self-destructs here's a guy that often talked about life and death almost like he didn't care but there's simply not even one instance of him attempting suicide in fact if anything he used to say about you know i'm going to stick around just to piss you off or i'm going to stick around just to screw death or, or just to piss off the critics or I don't know, almost like I'm not going to engage in, in the self-destructive to the point of being self-destructive because that's my rebel position. <laughs> it's, a, it's an unusual take on things. It really is, and, and, and both in, interesting and, and unique and, and, and solitary all at the same time. But that was him, and that's what makes him uh, uh, both fascinating and, and complex at the same time. But as you can see, when I break it down, it makes a little bit more sense about at least how he was acting Sometimes even how he was writing, but he was not—he was not messing around. He was not being inconsistent or hypocritical when he says that. Essentially, if he wasn't bothering him or asking for an interview, which for in many instances he never turned down, <laughs> how the hell are you antisocial and never turn down an interview? You know, you think about it. <laughs> Some writers back then that that were uh, antisocial, they turned them all down. There's plenty of them that did. He didn't. There's so many uh, interviews of this guy written in uh, film, audio, all kinds of stuff that you can actually listen to and check out and, and learn a lot. Not only about him, but sometimes about what was going on back then, about writing in general. He had a lot of thoughts. All right, so that's the first 
<clears throat> excuse me, interesting, um, I don't know if you want to call it inconsistency or, or strange contrast or or just simply counter-reality to what he was saying and doing. He wasn't always doing what he was saying. That usually means something unusual. But for Bukowski, I'm not going to give him some of those classic terms. I, I wouldn't even call the guy a hypocrite because I believe that he meant to follow the things he's talking about. He did to a certain extent. He was antisocial in the sense that he wasn't hanging around a bunch of writers talking about stuff. He seemed to loathe that. He wouldn't be somebody that just goes around hanging for with fans and around the table, you know, chanting stories and stuff because he loved the attention. He didn't do that. He would engage them when they engaged him, kept it short and sweet, and went about his business. So he did that. I don't know if he was doing that just because he was trying to be a professional writer and he felt that, hey, you know, if they're interested in me or if they're buying something I'm selling, I should at least do that. We don't really know. He never really talks about it in that way. But he does seem to, at least on a brief period of time or a brief period, okay, he's okay with the attention. Almost likes it and talks freely and candidly. And, and for the most part, coherently. <laughs> so we get a lot from that. And, and, but I, I do believe that at the heart, he, he was somebody that was generally antisocial. I know, probably sounds like I'm contradicting myself, or he's contradicting himself, but I think in many ways you could be both, and I think he showed that that could be the case. I'm not saying this is something you should do, or something I do, or want to do. I'm just saying that I think that there was a parallel track with him for somehow, and he was able to do it, and did do it. There's just simply too many examples to ignore that that went on. Now, besides him being antisocial, okay, Bukowski had a strange anti-intellectual streak, which again is an unusual contradiction because he continues to claim in many interviews and many times even in his writing uh, that uh, art is a bunch of crap and uh, culture is baloney and uh, most of the other writers are just, you know, stuck up idiots and you could do this if you work hard. And it's not that damn difficult to follow your muse. Just to pay attention to it and stop being a jerk and being distracted. This is from the guy that's, you know, chasing women, drinking, and, you know, uh, throwing up every other place. Okay? But still, this is what he was saying. And I'm sure to a certain extent he has to be practicing in it, too, because of how prolific he was, how much he spent his time in interviews. I mean, alone. You know, I, sometimes he was given like five or six interviews in, in a day. And in some periods at that time, he was still writing only part-time as he was working. And still doing all that, still drinking, and up like 16 hours a day. So, he's able to do it all for a certain period of time anyway. certain good stretch of years. But anti-intellectual, I know, it's difficult. He continues to say, I don't, I don't know, I don't care about all these people, but we find out in the end something completely different. We find out later on from some people that knew him and also from, from his, some of his interviews later on that he confessed, yeah, I'm much more well-read than I'm, I've let on. I've read all the classics. I know many of these writers. Then he starts, you know, you know putting them off. So you know that uh, he is. So, and it goes to the old adage. Okay, you really can't break the rules until you know something about those rules. And uh, Bukowski, uh, in all his bluffing, and because <laughs> that's what it was to me anyway, and all his boasting about, um, 
you know, the hell with the rules and the hell of formality and the hell with the establishment, the hell of intellectualism and hell of elitism and blah, blah, blah. You know, he was well versed in it. He had a, a, a deep background in it. It turns out when he was a teenager being, you know, abused and, and ignored and neglected and everything else, he was out there reading like crazy. So he had a, a, a strong intellectual uh, background that he created himself. So um, he was not illiterate. <laughs> he was not uneducated. He was certainly not somebody that didn't uh, understand what the intellectuals were talking about. I think he did. He just didn't care, which is a complete different subject in a complete different way. That's fine. But you'll take you can see here that more times than not, sometimes the, the boastfulness and, and the macho-ness will, will get uh, conflicted or confused or intermingled with some of the realities that he was actually involved in, both in practice in his daily life and what he did in the past. And once you learn to separate that, then you'll be able to understand more about the guy. I mean, some of this is driven from his personality and possibly the abusive child that's still in him. And I don't mean to be a psychologist on this. I'm just sort of offering my opinion on it because that's what thoughts on Charles Bukowski is. Like any other the other shows I've done before, I'm offering my opinion and my thoughts. Okay? So um, you can take that or you can leave that. But when you find out the type of abuse he went through, when you find out that you know, he was still dealing with in his life with, with depression, which he talks about, and which we're going about to talk about right now. Um, and here we go. By his own confession, in a number of instances, he dealt with depression. Um, and he had his own cure for it. Instead of taking drugs or drinking himself to death, uh, he would go to sleep for three days. Now, it's not real sleep for three days, but he would be in the bed for three days, sometimes sleeping. Okay. Then he said he can operate again for months without another bout of this depression. So he went through these bouts, and this is how he handled it. He actually gave himself credit that um, he might have came up with an idea for people to uh, beat the writer's block or the beat, you know, when they have these bouts of depression. Because that's pretty much how he, he put it together back then, that he was dealing with, you know, a writer's block type of thing, which we all know now is a, a lower form of depression. The deepness of his depression in terms of, you know, does he have one of the terms that we use now? Was he bipolar? Was he, you know, you know, severely depressed? You know, was he schizophrenic? Or did he have a split personality? Blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know if anybody really knows. We do know that his own confession that he was. We also know that there's no record of him seeing a therapist. There's no record of him getting any formal therapeutic treatment. So apparently he tried to do these things on his own. Maybe writing is his own form of self-therapy. Uh, maybe alcohol to the same extent was. And maybe him doing this three-day sleep thing. But he really thought that it was a, a good thing for him to do. And he did it regularly, he said, throughout his life. Now, does that really work? I don't know. Because the other, if you think about it, the other theory could be that, hey, Charles, uh, maybe this three-day day rest thing is working only because you're given the writing a break. Maybe uh, you're writing about things that are, are so close to the surface of some of your feelings about your past you know, that it causes a writer's block. It gets that emotional constipation, like I used to call it. And by stop writing, however you stop writing, you know it kind of gives your mind a break, so you can go back to it in a different fashion again. And, you know, get yourself back to you know being stronger again about it. 
because I, I gotta I gotta believe that when you write about these things like he did in the confessional style, you know you are you are scraping things that are sensitive. You are touching on things that that are hurtful, you know, and uh, that can't continue before that that probably gets to you. He's human, and to me, I think that's more what happened than anything else. His stopping of his writing probably helped him more than anything else, and maybe. Uh, Maybe it helped him, uh, you know, live longer. Because remember, he didn't, he didn't completely uh, fall apart there in, in the end. He was still writing and still engaging and and still doing things. So, God bless him, and, and God, God willing, we all can do the same thing. Because uh, you know, he didn't really get the formal rest he was talking about. I mean, he was watching some TV here and there, and you know, he mentions that you know sometimes he would have sectional partners in this three-day vest thing. So that was a part of therapy for him. <laughs> I know. Uh, he even mentions uh, drinking sometimes in that and even getting a bunch of bathroom breaks, which, of course, you know, if you have a lot of bathroom breaks, uh, it's kind of hard to have any real un uninterrupted rest. But I really think that the parlance for him, you know, on three days of rest is not really sleep as much as this three days off from writing. That worked for him. But he was definitely somebody that, that definitely was dealing with depression, and I, I'm sure he dealt with that his his entire life. Whether he dealt with it better than most people did, I couldn't really tell you. He, he obviously, as you could tell here, he did have some methods, some things he believed in. Ah, at least he believed in something. So, and that that's good, uh, you know, for him in that regard. Now, Bukowski is very unusual. Not in just all the things I've described, which by themselves are pretty damn unusual, okay? He's also unusual in terms of the style of writing that he was doing. You'll, you'll find plenty of poets, so let's just stick to poetry for a moment, that they can write in a way that I kind of call like standalone, you know, kind of way. You know, we have episodes on the show here that are, they could just be standalone on one subject and then we can have one that, you know, it touches on 20 different things. Some people can write poems that way, just stand alone, meaning that you don't have to really be involved in any of their other work to say, wow, I'm really getting that. Wow, I like what this guy done. Oh, this girl done. I like the technique. I like the rhyme. I like this. I like that. You know, you could think about that, like the uh, like the poem, the, the you know, Road Not Taken, which is not by Bukowski, by the way. And, and read that and say, Wow, Frost is something else. Just from this one poem, wow, I really got that. I mean, wow, because that's really a standalone poem. It doesn't need to be connected uh, to a personality, or to an artist, to a philosophy, to a certain style. It doesn't need a sequel, so to speak. It doesn't need any continuity. It could stand by itself. Some writers do that and do that very well. Sometimes that's just the way they write. Sometimes that's their, their natural style. Sometimes that's just why they became famous in the first place. Bukowski's not one of those people. And I don't mean to just pick out Frost as just being one of those people, but um, this is a good example of making a, a real comparison. Bukowski is, in, in many ways, because he's that confessional slash, you know, Pope type of writer, you're going to find out that he didn't write those pieces standalone or, and, and they could become an individual art piece. They really need to be read 
in conjunction with many things that he's been that he wrote. I don't always feel, and you'll you'll notice it if you read more than a couple of his books of that. I feel that they worked well in a train of thought that he was doing because he was known to put together poems in what he used to call bursts, meaning that he'd sit down and he'd do like 15 or 20 poems over, I don't know, five, six hours or whatever he was doing. But often it was in the same day. He'd go back to it later on maybe to tune them on up and then they were done and he went on to other things. So they had a real relationship to each other and they really had a stream of thought of consciousness for, for that period of the, the burst, okay? So when sometimes his books are put together, they might not always follow that. But I believe that if you read enough of his work, you'll see a lot of patterns and you'll see how some of that's in connected together. It's only then, if you can read, let's say, 10, 20, 30 of these things, that you get an idea of what he was trying to say, where he's coming from, what he's trying to do, maybe even what he's trying to point out. You need to do that with more than one poem. Because that's how he was writing. Almost like that pulpy serial type of way. You know, where it's, it's it might seem, if you, you get enough of them, almost like a linear thought, but it's taking a bunch of poems to get there. It's not one big poem saying everything. It, it takes a bunch of them, maybe attacking it at different angles or, or from from different viewpoints or, or possibly even from different emotions in, in, in that same so-called burst. So that makes him very, very unique in that way. And oftentimes when people who are new to him or people that say, Mark, I just I can't I can't grasp the guy. I can't connect. I, I just can't hang on to anything. That's one of the reasons why. So what I am saying in a nutshell is not go run and get some Bukowski because somehow if you don't, you know, your life won't be fulfilled and you can't be an artist. OK, I'm. I'm not nuts over here, okay? But what I am saying is if you are interested and curious and you want to investigate, you need to go past a couple of poems and say, I don't get it, man. I just don't get it. Yeah, you won't get it, okay? You need to read a lot more into them. Now, from an artistic view, if you stand behind on that and look at that, or as a critic, and if you want to say something about, well, damn, doesn't that really say something about you know, his art and his style and it disjointed and disconnected and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Maybe it says the opposite. Maybe it just says that's how he was approaching his art. That's how he was dealing with things. We all have to remember, I say this all the time, we all have to approach it in a very highly personalized style in order for us to get what we want to get across. We can't be somebody else. How can you be somebody else if you're working so hard to try to be yourself? See, so that means being yourself possibly can mean that you're creating your own style. Maybe different than anybody else. Eventually, if you write enough, if you write enough, you will. So, and then you're not going to want some outside critics saying, I don't like your style. It doesn't make any sense to me. So, that's why I'll, I kind of resist the criticisms to that because I can clearly see that over going for the course of some of his works that to me, that's the case of what he was doing. Now, I honestly don't think that this guy was sitting down with some strategic plan in the damn chart saying, you know, I think by uh, poem 26, I should get my thought across now. You know, I spread it out, you know, blah, blah, blah. This wasn't a conscious choice, okay? This is something both artistic slash psychological going on in the, in the artist's mind and in the artist's approach. 
That's just really daddy. That's what it is. So you can uh, respect it or not, or take it or leave it, or not even care about it. Those are all fine reactions. But uh, to say that it's not any uh, more or less valid, you know, than anybody else's style, well, that would be a clearly a prejudicial view and, and, and kind of ridiculous. Not because he's well-read, not because, you know, he's gotten millions of books uh, sold. A lot of people don't realize it that uh, in, in terms of actual poetry books sold, uh, Bukowski is up there in, in the high numbers. And, and, and in some cases, in some particular pieces of material in the millions. And translated in, I think, at least 18 languages. Okay, so I know it's probably hard for many people to digest artistically. If you want to put this guy in the category of a Poe or a Frost or something like that, in terms of just the numbers of people reading or the numbers of books sold or the numbers of, you know, those sort of lineages. But he, he's in there in terms of just those commercial aspects. He's there. Whether you want to put him in the same class of writing of that, I don't I don't really know. I, I'm not really um, going to uh, judge it that way or, or say it that way or not. Uh, because uh, I'm conflicted myself, okay? Uh, I love Poe, so kind of hard to put anybody in the same Poe category. I, I think that uh, Poe was a genius. Where, um, not to make anybody mad, I don't believe that Bukowski was a genius, and neither do I believe that Frost was a genius. I think these are great writers that deserve a, a enormous credit and, and that we should read and, and we should learn from and, and we should uh, salute and respect. But uh, to me, in my own opinion, I wouldn't put him in the pole class. But I could see somebody on the broader basis saying that, hey, you know, Bukowski uh, is sold a lot. And even if you subtract the Hollywood factor, and we'll, we'll talk about that here soon, um, he still had a, a big following. He did and he does. So that should not be taken away. Even if some people were taking him wrong or, or just going off a legend or going off a, a rumor or going off word of mouth or just trying to be clever and stylish. I'm sure some of that's true too. In fact, you'll hear people all the time say, I used to read him just because it was like the end thing to do. I don't know anymore, so, but I know something about him and I like him and, you know, that's that. It's a, it's a fair assessment and, and it's not a bad way of going about things. Sometimes it happens. And what are you going to do? I'd rather people get excited for a little while about a writer versus a rocker, you know, these days. So I'm, I'm all for that. Go for it. Why not? I don't think it hurts. For some, for some period of time, they were doing that with Stephen King. I knew people that bought his books and never even read them. Eh, I just, you know, I saw the movie. I figured, what the hell. Then never got around to doing it. Whatever. So that happens, believe it or not. So it's not that unusual. And in some cases, uh, if you think about it, the, the beat writers still live on to, to the, today. Maybe not necessarily just because they were really good writers, but maybe just necessarily because they become now parts of a, you know, a iconic history and, and a countercultural movement. And, and sometimes even the politics have been of those days. It all flows with that. So that allows them to stay in the, the public eye or in the academic world or just in the class of writers from back then. I don't know. If we really need, in an opinion or in an artistic way, you know, some one thing to be pure and excited about on a writer. 
I don't know if there is one one thing. It, it has so many different levels. So it's hard to really criticize somebody and say, yeah, you know, they just really read the guy because they like the fact that, you know, he's kind of a rude uh, drunk guy that, you know, slipped a lot around and, you know, wound up becoming famous, you know, despite of being a weirdo. That's probably just as much as a fair opinion as anything else I talked about on the show. If that's that's what you thought and, and that's what you're reading him about or that's what you're expecting, well, guess what? You're probably going to get some of that. I'm just saying in the show that he was more than that. And in some cases, he was trying to hide it that he was more than that because some cases, I, I think even he was starting to realize that the persona and, and, and everything else that people were talking about was getting out of hand and getting even more than even he wanted. But when the cat's out of the bag or the genie's out of the bottle or whatever cliche you want to use, very, very hard to put back in. All right, next, knock, knock, knock. You got a Hollywood on the door, okay? And let's talk about that. I actually, I want to talk about the Hollywood version before we talk about some of the more serious philosophical things that he himself had talked about. We'll get the Hollywood thing out of the first way first, all right? So they put together a couple of movies, uh, you know, one more on one of his books and the other one more on just uh, his lifestyle. Uh, the, the more famous one, Barfly, had, had Ricky, uh, uh, the, what's his name? Um, Mickey Rourke, there we go, Mickey, not Ricky, but Mickey Rourke, yeah, you know, the uh, Irish-American actor, always in a lot of uh, weird movies and tough guy stuff, so he was in that, you know, I don't know how accurate the movie was to his life, you know, like all movies, they got to take some liberties, you know, but it, it helped make him more famous, you know, and actually put some money in his pocket as well, um, being Bukowski, definitely helped uh, be an engine to sell a lot of his, more of his books, you know, some people like to say the Hollywood thing pushed more of his books than anything else. But that's really detractors saying that because the truth is the opposite. It did help, yeah, but it wasn't the engine in the end because before Hollywood got involved, I mean, his books were already starting to sell a lot because of his persona, because of his interviews. All those things helped him in many ways to get more people involved. He had a dedicated press uh, from uh, somebody that put together a press that put his books out all the times. I know City Lights over in San Francisco that produced the uh, um, the beat uh, writers uh, uh, carriers books a lot. So that allowed a lot of people from San Francisco that were in the you know the writing and the art world to also get involved and purchase his stuff. Oftentimes he was purchased right next to the beat writers, and that's why they called him an honorary beat writer, even though he wasn't a beat writer. Didn't even like the beat writers. In fact, didn't even like most writers. So. He was already starting to sell way before Hollywood came on board. Hollywood just sort of pushed it to the to the next level. It's how a lot of people have gotten to know something about his character. And this is how a lot of people have become uh, enamored with him, uh, making him into a legend, uh, making him into a god or an icon or whatever. I don't know about any of those words uh, describing him or, hell, any other writer for that matter. Uh, because they all have their particulars and they all have their interesting uh, traits and they all have their styles and they all have their their uh, their imprints on, on the writing world but it's not that usual for a writer to get any of that kind of treatment regardless of the lifestyle he was living was part of it so i still think it's a positive thing in the end my my viewpoint you know as as a writer is like yeah great i like to see a little bit more of that okay i don't care if they were not that terribly interesting or not i mean if you think about it um some wasn't. I mean, think about Isaac Asimov, the great science fiction writer. He's a, a, a monumental intellect, 
and, and, and a real cerebral person in the interview, but I don't know what the hell kind of movie you can make out of him. You know, he had a very normal life. <laughs> you know, a normal marriage. Uh, he didn't really have any unusual uh, viewpoints outside of that he, he was against religion because he was an atheist and he thought that was a, a detrimental thing to society. You know, I disagree, but that was his viewpoint. But I don't even know how the hell you have much of a biography on the guy. Unless you're just going into the, the movies that were made about his writing or some of the writings themselves. But then again, you're going to have an interview more about the writing than you're going to have about the writer. Why? Because he's not terribly interesting or sexy or dramatic or controversial. He's just not. I, this is not to put anything down on the guy. But so you think about it when you have, the, when you have movies, you have Hollywood... You know, they have to be able to get on to certain things that they can sell that movie on. And Bukowski, well, <laughs> he's, a perfect, he's a perfect foil and the perfect fodder. Definitely a perfect subject matter for that. I mean, so I'm, I'm not really surprised. Uh, are there others that can be? Yeah, I, I guess they can. But again, I don't know how. If you wanted to do one on Poe, you have the same problems. I mean, that's a dreary life over there. I, I probably want to leave after 15 minutes if you did a movie just on that. And I love the guy. Because I don't know how much more I could take of him. You know? Crying and drinking and, and being depressed and living through death and the disappointment and, you know, and the harsh behavior that was uh, shed towards him and some of the harsh behavior that he had. You know? Well, we're going to have another show about him, by the way, next month. Just in time for the Halloween thing. It'd be kind of fun. It'll be a sequel on him. And you'll learn some of the things that... Because, you know, the first show was more about him and his life. And some of the things that were, you know, forced against him, uh, you know, by, by tragedy. And, you know, sometimes just the, the, the adoption and the parents. All that other, all the stuff that, did, you know, happened to him. And the second thing is more about, you know, the things that he did. And the choices he made. So, it'll be a different take on him. But it'll still be interesting. So I can see that. I mean, I, how are you going to do something like that? So that's why when they did a lot of things about Poe with movies, well, guess what? It, it's always about the characters or the things that are in stories. It's not about him, per se, because that wouldn't work. So I guess Bukowski really lends himself to that, and, 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 it, and it makes sense. But it does make him a bigger, you know, size figure than most would be, uh, even in, in, in his own period of time, you know? You say... Something uh, about in a, in a writer's group or a writer's crowd. Bogowski, and they could tell you some, oh, a whole bunch of things. And you say, Ginsburg, and they're like, oh, who the hell was that? So, you know, and I'm not making fun of Ginsburg, but he, he won't come to your mind as quick as, as a Bukowski will. So, and that's just the truth of the matter. And that tells you something about how far uh, his name and how far his, you know, his legend, so to speak, has had gone out there. It definitely is out there. Now, Let's get a little bit more on the on the serious side of some of the things that he did talk about that even though he talked about, he was still uh, contradicting himself by saying, I don't really have a philosophy. I hate philosophy. I don't really have an intellectual basis of my writing. I hate intellectuals. I hate intellectualism. I hate elitism. All the things he didn't like. Okay? But he did have it. <laughs> okay? He did. All right, so here we go. Now, this is just from him. All right? He had a motto. It was actually on his tombstone as well. Don't try. Those, those two words. Now, if you don't really understand the man, you probably just flippantly say, see, just don't try. The guy's just a complete, uh, you, know, you know, negative person. No. He believed that writers, by trying, 
are forcing our way into word placement instead of allowing talent to freely flow and therefore produce works by natural progress. So basically he felt by trying, you were not doing. This is what his ultimate philosophy was. And if you read a number of his interviews or a number of the things he wrote, this is what he talks about on a regular basis. So if he did have a philosophy, and apparently he did, because this is a fully formed one, whether folks like it or not, can use it or not, or want to cling to it or not, or want to criticize it or not, do all of that if you'd like. But it is a philosophy, and it was his. And that's pretty much what he believed in. He certainly definitely practiced that way. I really think that his near-death experience in the hospital and how suddenly he becomes um, you know, a fully-fledged committed poet later in his life um, and never stopped from 35 until the time he died, which was in 1994, uh, that, uh, that formed his philosophy, and he went from there with it. I think he realized himself that uh, you know, he might have spent years just trying uh, to figure out what kind of writer he wanted to be, what kind of things he wanted to talk about. Those 10 years where he wasn't doing much writing and where he was just drinking a lot and it was damaging his health, that might have been his, you know, his walk in the desert, so to speak. You know, or the 40 days in the wilderness or, you know, whatever whatever metaphor we want to use. That that's probably was was his. And I really think that, and, and I'm sure this is going to sound controversial and it's probably going to make people email me all day long. Oh, well, okay. But I really think that if you, if you look at everything we talked about and now you have a better understanding of him, his drinking days were probably over by the age of 35 when he came out of the hospital and he survived the bleeding ulcer that nearly killed him. I mean, they had to give him pints of blood. That's how bad it was, where he was like literally on the deathbed. His drinking days were probably over at that point. I mean, in the sense that, no, he didn't become a teetotaler. He certainly didn't become somebody who was preaching against alcohol. Hell, in the other reverse, he was preaching for it, about it. He purposely took pictures with beers in his hand. Why would somebody do that if they're an alcoholic? You know how many alcoholics didn't have anything in their hands? Okay, I didn't see a bunch of heroin addicts with needles in their hands all the time when they were getting these photo stills taken. You know, you didn't see Burroughs shooting himself up, even though that's what he was doing. I, I think it was part of the persona and was part of the image that he was trying to create was part of his writing. He was still doing some drinking because we know that there was times when he was drunk, throwing up in, in, in his own house or other people's houses at parties. You know, what we don't know is how much he was doing that on purpose for that effect. But I suspect that his real drinking days were over with a long time before that. I don't think he was ever going able to be able to go back to that in the serious manner that he did in those 10 years before. This is not possible for him to continue to write on any kind of prolific basis. Remember, this guy wrote 5,300 poems, okay? Had over 50 books out. They're still producing books about him over 16 years after he's dead because he wrote that much. And they had the rights to it. They're still putting it out. So... Not possible to put that kind of body of work together, spend that much time doing the interviews. I mean, I, I think that, I literally think that Bukowski, I haven't done the math on this, okay? But uh, there's a good chance that he might have been one of the most interviewed uh, writers, like, like in history. I'm serious. I counted at least 35, and I know there's got to be more than that. Now, I'm, calling, I'm putting everything together. I'm putting the film together that he did. Uh, you Never Had It, 
uh, one of the uh, um, Italian-born uh, uh, journalists from a magazine uh, put it together and filmed it, filmed filmed the interview in his dirty apartment. <laughs> Uh, that's the only way to put it, because you look at it, and you're like, oh my God, what, what is this guy doing? Well, he's definitely not cleaning. Um, of course, he's had uh, uh, some radio interviews. He had some television interviews, a lot of written interviews, uh, a, a lot of things he talked to people about uh, in on the phone. Uh, as an informal interview, just because fans would call him up, and they often wrote or, or talked about that themselves. I mean, it's just an enormous body of just interview work. And it's another way to really learn to bottom. So I don't know if that, you know, uh, psychologically in the back of his mind, he was like, well, let me just get this out here this way because I don't know if I can really face it that way. Again, not trying to be a psychologist over here. Maybe I'm wrong. But that's my theory and that's my opinion anyway. Okay? Because why would somebody want to do that so much? It doesn't look like he loved lots of attention. It just looks like he didn't mind it at times. Sometimes he can tolerate it for a certain period of time. But he was generally antisocial, you know, in nature. He just um, didn't practice that too well. I mean, I'm really not trying to make a joke over here, but this is a guy that's supposed to be a drunk, and I honestly think that uh, he really didn't do that much drinking. <laughs> you know, and this is a guy that's supposed to be antisocial, and in many instances, he seems to be pretty damn social. I mean, he's all over the place. Remember, the photographs that are often taken by him, they're not taken by fans or or anything else. They're taken in a lot of these dinner parties that he went to, a lot of these social functions, or even even literary things, events that he went to. Uh, lots of them, too. There's plenty of them on. If you look on the internet alone, you, you're going to find like five or six dozen. I don't know, again, if this is the most photographed uh, a writer in the history of mankind. Because remember, we got some writers that you, you're lucky you have a handful of photographs. I don't care what... You know, what century while there was still some form of photography out, still, it's amazing. There was a lot of them out there. You know, and if you look at his uh, his look at some of these things, he didn't seem like somebody that was terribly shy in that regard. He didn't look like he was, like, annoyed by it even. He almost looked like he was just like, yeah, okay, what's up, take it, I'm cool. So... And I guess if you want to call the guy cool, I think there's probably some instances where you could probably do that too. Um, ironically, people's interactions with him were different depending on what was happening in that interaction, okay? And in a formal uh, film interview, uh, as much as he might have ranted and raved about things, you know, he still was, um, he still was pretty darn intellectual and artistic. As much as still he had that persona and that personality that was coming out. But he still was. So you couldn't, you know, take away from that interview. Ah, oh, this guy's just a rambling drunk. Uh, no. I don't give a crap if he had a beard in his hand. He probably wasn't even drunk when he did the interview. It's probably just a damn prop. For all we know, it wasn't even any alcohol in it. I'm serious. This is what I'm, I suspect in many instances. Because the interview itself... Sure, it might go in a couple different directions, or it might not always be uh, appearing to be a cohesive body of work or message. It still was intelligent. It still answered questions. It still was a hell of a lot more revealing than you would ever expect. You can't do that 
you know, without having a, a decent form of consciousness, without having some some interflection, uh, which he claims he never did have, but he, he obviously did. Definitely was, you know, introspective. I'm sorry, that would be the proper word. He had more introspection than he said he did. <laughs> but again, a lot of things he said and a lot of things that either he wound up doing or, or practicing, they're not always going to be in the, in, you know, in the same consistent group. Definitely the conflicts there. That's what makes a, a complex personality. That's why we had to break some of this down. Now, we talked about some of the philosophy. Here is another piece of his philosophy, okay? Remember, we talked about the don't try one. I like to call that more of the pop cultural philosophy that he used to spell a lot in interviews or even with, with some of the people who called him on his phone. Remember, this is one of the few writers. <laughs> I'm antisocial. And he's talking to dozens of people on the phone on a regular basis. I'm not even sure if we have yet to take a full count of everybody who's ever talked to him on the phone. I swear there could be a book just about people who said things that Bukowski talks to him about on the phone. It could be a book on it. There has to be that many. I know I've gone through like 20 of them at least where people had said something about it. And, and, and I, don't, I don't think any of them were exaggerating. It's just that if you read them all, you'd be pretty pretty amazed that, really, he's not cursing anybody? Really, he's not being a complete jerkweed? Really? He's not trying to pick up the girl who's asking them serious artistic questions? <laughs> nope. He's actually answering like an artist. Yeah, he's still a character, but still. So, he uh, he definitely had um, a real artistic uh, sense to him, even when he's saying, I hate art and I don't believe in art. Okay. I don't like art. I think it's a bunch of crap. And he's taking photographs in, in his house with art all over the place in the back of his, uh, all those walls. So, you know, I'm not saying that you need to take what he's saying lightly. I'm just saying that it bears more scrutiny. Okay, that's all. Here is his absolute formal philosophy. Okay, and I not only do I believe in most of it, because some of it I already practiced myself, but I believe that it's exactly how he was going about things. But it's formally his philosophy. You could literally call it the Bukowski philosophy, okay? Bukowski didn't see philosophy as a craft. In fact, he always said that there was such a bunch of BS that philosophy wasn't a craft, okay? Meaning that it was some kind of white-collar pastime or some kind of ivory tower type of thing. So when you say craft... That's how he was interpreting it, and therefore he didn't believe it was a craft, okay? So remember, for anybody, even a writer, there are certain words that you can use. It's based on what their definition is, is, is the kind of response they could give you, you know? If somebody could have cornered him and said, listen, Ms. Bukowski, if, uh, if I'm looking at craft as just about how I'm engaging, trying to put this, uh, this poem or this fiction piece or this novel together, my idea of how to approach the craft, so to speak, of writing, then I'm not really feeling that it's along this white-collar thing or something that can only be teached at a college or, or a creative writing course or, or something more formal, then, then maybe you and I can have a conversation about that. I think that once you did that, that lets his guard down, so to speak, and I think he would be able to speak more freely about that. That really didn't happen in any of his interviews but because people just let him ramble on. They didn't do too much interjection or intervening or, or questioning of him. I don't know if because they were afraid of his persona or they were afraid of his reputation 
Or they just said to hell with it, just let the tape roll. He got me. I, I don't know why. But uh, those are the questions I would have for him, you know, if he was still around and would be willing to talk about that. Who knows? But that's what I would say. So because he viewed it that way, he didn't view it as a craft. He instead felt, and, he, and this, this is going to be his, uh, I'm going to give you his direct quote and I'll give you mine, okay? Um, I feel that he practiced his poetry like a, like a blue-collar mechanic, just putting things together until it came out. Uh, because he was had a more blue-collar blue uh, viewpoint of the world, okay? His direct quote was this. Um, I approach poetry as a matter, this is in quote, a matter of labor and revision. So he felt, those are his exact words, you know, end quote, revision, on his philosophy. That's literally how he approached his writing. It was simply about doing the work. Which, of course, does flow inconsistently with the don't try part of his pop philosophy about just go out there and do it. Don't keep trying to figure this out and do that. Just keep writing. Keep doing it. Keep revising. He just believed in it. So, you know, it's another way of saying, you know, that writing, uh, the secret of it is rewriting, like I always say. And that's really what he said. Write, 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 more write. Revise it, write, write. Okay? So, he has a lot of uh, people that are cheerleaders that oftentimes... You know, in their in their um their quest to promote him or the quest to to make him even bigger, you know that he is is that you know ah I just wrote that down and what a genius and that was it, uh no, so don't get carried away with your own boisterousness now uh, okay and apply things to him that even he wasn't doing okay because that doesn't help anybody it certainly doesn't help the reputation of a writer he makes it clear from his own words labor and revision which means that. No, he didn't write that in one of those bursts, and that was it. He did his bursts, he put it to the side. Later on, he probably went back to it and did revision. It's been known by somebody who's a scholarly studying him right now that he probably lost a lot of work because sometimes when he did that, he lost that stuff because he wasn't always writing it on a formal pad, which he wound up doing later off in life. Yes, I know. He had a pad and a pencil in his pocket. I'm sure he just didn't bring that out in one of those photographs because, God forbid, he didn't want to actually look studious. But again, remember, in many ways he's contributing to his image and his legend and his persona than, than, than he was actually practices in it. But we know later on he did carry something like that. He's confessing already that he did that in terms of a revision. But the scholar was saying that he lost a lot of his work because he was on different pieces of paper, cocktail napkins, all kinds of other crap, and some of that stuff got thrown away or lost or whatever. So who knows what he might have lost later on in one of those bursts. But a lot of times those bursts uh, became the foundation of him revising later on and, and creating some poems. Probably uh, the bulk of them from what he said in one of his interviews and what the scholars are already noticing from some of the early work. Uh, some people have taken photographs privately of some of that work because the paper, the paper was falling apart. Or in some instances, you know, he wrote down something and then later on was using it to clean up a spill or wiping his mouth for food or something. Um this is not to disperse his character or anything, but, you know, uh, you could tell from the photographs and even some of the interviews that, you know, he wasn't exactly the uh, the best housekeeper a year award kind of person. Uh, might not even also have been the most hygienic person. Some of those photographs, they honestly look like he hadn't taken a shower in a while, okay? Whether that's on purpose or not, I don't know. <laughs> it might not be. I don't know. He never had a formal statement about it. But, you know, we see enough pictures to say 
dude, what is up? So you, you have to wonder about that. Don't really know. But that's that's the kind of guy <laughs> that he became, and that's the kind of guy he was. But, hey, he still had people wanting to interview him. He still had women wanting to date him, if date would be the right word. Um, and he's not exactly a guy that was, um, from his own admission, you know, um, taking care of uh, himself in, in that manner. So, now, towards the end of his life, he, he was a very, um, to his credit and character, a loyal man. So he kept to um, the uh, Black Sparrow Press. It was a press that was uh, put together by a real admirer of his and wound up, uh, you know, um, giving him some, uh, some money up front and um, paying him later on and, and, and produced a great bulk of many of his books, even to this, um, to this day. Uh, I know they sold the rights to someone else, but still they came from this what's called Black Sparrow Press. So you might uh, buy something on, you know, eBay or maybe even a garage sale or something one day that you might actually see one of those original ones that came from that press. Okay? And I'm sure that the editor, who was also the publisher, had felt it was doing the right thing, but they wound up being an enormous uh, uh, controversy about this. Okay? Uh, there is what has been called by scholars now at this point editorial tampering. So there was there was some editing going on in some of his work that the uh, the publisher had engaged in, believing that this would help clear out or clear up some some of the works that he was producing later on. But remember, you know, you could be fond or maybe even a fan of the writer, like this person was. And, and do, doing the service by getting the work out, but you're not doing the service if you're not understanding what the guy is writing about. And messing with the writing is a bad idea. Because remember, if I'm telling you what I'm believing is him writing in a more serial manner rather than standalone, and then you're going and messing with a poem because I think the reader will understand it more if I try to change this. What the hell are you doing? You're not supposed to be changing anybody's work, first of all. Uh, especially if you don't have their permission and really, after they're dead, uh, I don't really see you having their permission, okay? And and just messing up the whole tone, the whole style, or maybe even the whole damn definition of the poem, or, or what it's even saying. So, what had happened was, uh, it was found out that this went on, okay? So, they found, because a lot of the original papers were, were found, so they were able to, and they're still working on it to this day, Posthumously, unfortunately, um, volumes of his poems. I, I'm 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 reading that it could be in the neighborhood of over a thousand poems. Okay, that they are going back to some of the paperwork and then going over there and just recorrecting it from what it said versus what an editor had done, so that it could be restored. So uh, there might actually be additions coming out in the near future that restored uh, some of these poems versus what they were written before. I understand that we're not talking about punctuation or word. So um, that's serious. And um, that's important, not mentionally for his work and the art, but it's also important that, you know, we don't allow people to do that. Remember, as our own writers here in this day, and I've had to turn down a number of times where an editor has literally said, hey, I changed some stuff over here, and um, I'm letting you know about it and see if you're okay before we publish this. Uh, uh, no, I'm not okay. Are you nuts? 
and then turn down that because I know at this point, if I'm saying no, they're not going to say, um, okay, I'm going to publish it anyway. If this is really what they believe needs to get done for whatever reason they have, cool, but I'm not for it. No, you're not doing it. I guess I'm not going to get published when you're in your place. Have a good day. That's what happens. And I'm okay with that. I've done that a, a couple of times. Uh, I did have a couple instances where um, I've had an editor, you know, say, um, I think this could get changed here or maybe this little piece cut off there and would improve things. And when I saw that that was really the case, I'm saying, yes, I'm okay with that. Don't go anything else without my permission. But yeah, that would be fine. You have my permission. But that's not the case here. And that's never a good thing, you know. So it's I'm, I'm sure the person had the best of intentions, but it, it is in the end deeply respectful. And I don't even know if that person was a writer or not, because not every editor out there that does these sort of things is even a writer or understands what they're doing is not a good thing. Now, I want to end the, the, the show here with a lot of his quotes. A lot of his quotes, they're not just fun and snappy as much as they, they give you a real idea about that. The man was thinking about humanity. He was thinking about the world. He was thinking about his own internal world and, and about art. Basically, all the things he said he wasn't thinking about, okay? Because there's plenty of things that he used to say, you know, off the cuff about, you know, I'm not social, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really hate people, I just don't like being around them, you know, I don't really care about the world, I'm just going to write about the things that I care about, and, you know, I mean, some cases that's true. I mean, you, you, there's not much about the man they wrote that was really cultural or political. He just didn't seem to care about that. Uh, but here are some of these quotes, and I, I think that when you see them, or at least when you hear them, or you see them in your mind, you'll get a better idea about, as we end the show, that um, he's a lot more, you know, than uh, than some clown like people make him out to be, or, you know, or some some drunk genius, or uh, or, or just some uh, you know crazy uh, lunatic that you know caught the right wave and Hollywood carried him the rest of the way. This is how a lot of people have impressions of him. I hope you'll learn from the show that he was a lot deeper than that, uh, a lot more interesting than that, a whole lot more talented than you might have realized. And I'm saying to you, as a fellow writer, he deserves a second look. All right, so here goes some of these quotes, okay? Some people never go crazy. What truly horrible lives they must lead. Now, sometimes he can be ironic and even funny, and I, I, I kind of find that humorous. But I get what he's trying to say, though, that oftentimes uh, you get somebody that they can't seem to get a joke or make a joke or even be humorous because they feel that being serious all the time is their best way of going about things. Well, maybe you feel that way, but you, you're going to lose something in life or maybe something in yourself. And uh, I mean, and how does that really help you in the end with your blood pressure, really? Uh, we are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. Yeah, that's definitely a Bukowski quote, and that's definitely part of his philosophy. You know, he'd laugh at death. I mean, he's been there before. But remember, his idea of laughing at death is just because he beat it once already and also because he went ahead, for the most part, full steam. Not in a self-destructive manner, I must add. But full steam in, in the tens that he was trying to document things. He was writing things. He was interviewing. I mean, he was really living the art that he was talking about. And and, me, and to me, that makes him really, 
You know, uh, if anyone hasn't really wanted to count that yet, including you scholars and critics out there, you know, that makes them a, a full-fledged artist. Maybe not the one you like, but it definitely makes them one. I don't hate people. I just feel better when they aren't around. Now remember, I'm giving you the exact quote here. I'm not paraphrasing anything or giving you something that filters to somebody else. This is exactly what he said. So I think after you hear the show, the quotes kind of make more sense, uh, especially what we talked about. That's definitely part of his philosophy. That's why I was saying, and in my own strange, contradictory way, that I really think that he, he was both um, social and antisocial. Uh, just he, he played about it on, on different timings in, in different ways. But I honestly think that he could be both, and he was both. An intellectual can say a simple thing in a hard way. An artist says a hard thing in a simple way. So again, you see this man thinking about stuff, okay? He's not thinking about Budweiser. He's thinking about art. You know, he just said how art is all crap and art sucks and art doesn't make any difference and just keep working at stuff. But again, he's talking about art <laughs> with a very intellectual statement. Somebody that doesn't believe in intellectualism. So you can see from his own quote, uh, yeah, he's thinking about these things. And, and now he's saying something that is not only coherent, it's pretty damn wise. You begin saving the world by saving one man at a time. All else is grandiose romanticism or politics. So you definitely see him dispensing on a lot of the worldview or romantic or even political things. He just didn't believe in any of that. There's no doubt about it. Uh, from um, reading his writings, that, that was just not part of what he was interested in. In life or in writing. Uh, and yeah, he did have that, that solitary look, so to speak. And, and, and how his viewpoint was. Um, but as much as his work might be seen confessional and autobiographical in, in, in some instances, you know, you, you see and feel and oftentimes that he is also speaking to you as well. It's one of the hallmarks of some of his poetry. If you read enough of it, you'll notice that. The free soul is rare. But you know what when you see it? Basically because you feel... Good, very good, when you are near with them, or you're near them or, or with them. So, I think in some instances, uh, Bukowski is trying to see here that um, he's had some, he has some times where there's some people he liked. He didn't like to call them friends. I'm not even sure if they called him a friend. But he liked them enough to be around them because he felt that, you know, they had a connecting soul. They had something that was authentic about them. They had something that ringed true about him. Because remember, Bukowski, if he wasn't anything, he was definitely the person that didn't want to be around people that was just simply fake, that wasn't trying to live, you know, a, a real life. Now, from what I did on the show by, in some ways, deconstructing or maybe even demystifying Bukowski... You know, in some ways, he might not have been doing that himself. But again, you know, it's not always easy to see the forest for the trees. And sometimes uh, you're blind to your own spots. But I honestly think in practice, it's what he was trying to do. Whether he was able to fully achieve that or not, well, that's going to be really up to you to decide. To do a dull thing with style. Now, that's what I call art. <laughs> So he had an unusual um, take on art. You can see he's putting it down and making fun of it, but he still acknowledges that it exists and it's still part of what he's doing. 
He's just making fun of it. <laughs> it's kind of funny too. Of course, it's possible to love a human being if you just don't know too much about them. <laughs> so, I think that it is an admission for him that, you know, probably difficult for him to maintain relationships for a long period of time because more of who, you know, he really was would come out and therefore, you know, maybe you like, you know, Bukowski on Monday and then on Friday you're like, I can't wait to get the hell out of here. Because baby, on Friday you got the whole you got the whole scoop, <laughs> you know you got all parts of him in there now. I don't know. It's a it's a fun joke to say. I'm not trying to say that in any insulting kind of way, but basically on that quote, I don't think that's only about you. It's probably about him too. I think it's probably about most of us in general. I think that in the end, uh, we make a friendship, or maybe we even make a love connection because it happens because people can survive if you want to call it long enough with us to say yeah I, I can handle that guy long enough he wants I want to be his friend or yeah I love that person because uh, what they have in them sides good better and different I can I can I can deal with it I can survive it I can I can handle it I I, I don't find it completely repulsive now well, that's pretty much what he's saying and last but not least uh, humanity you never had it to begin with so um, it's part of uh, his overall life philosophy, if you want to call that, although he never put it in any real formal way other than that statement, which comes across a lot in his work. In fact, the last interview he did was literally called that. You never had it, you know, an evening, uh, an interview with uh, Charles Bukowski. That was the last one he gave, uh, last big formal you know, one he, that he gave, and on film, by the way. I, I think in many ways he, he, uh, he felt... Uh, that humanity uh, wasn't all up that was cracked up to be, that in many instances we're failed creatures and, and that we make too much of ourselves and we have yet to really strive all the things that we could do. We haven't reached anything in a potential and therefore you know, we're enormously uh, disappointing, at least to him. Of course, it's not difficult for him to uh, say that and have that kind of worldview because remember, this is somebody that began that way with the world, you know, uh, mocking him, beating him, hurting him, you know, casting doubt on him, you know, and and of course, uh, you know, later on in his life, without trying to sound, you know, too critical of him, you know, um, I'm sure some of those things had happened as well, but uh, at that point, he's contributing to them as well, you know, but, you know, when we're artists, it's quite hard to, to take full responsibility to all the things that we do or say, because sometimes we don't really see them or hear them, Sometimes we don't even realize they're there. We have our own blind spots. Well, he's a human. He did as well. But he left his mark on the literary world, <laughs> whether he wanted to or not. He certainly left his uh, mark on, on, on Hollywood and in popular culture, certainly the counterculture, whether he wanted to or not. And, and definitely, um, whether the critics like it or not, he, he's going to be here to stay. He's not somebody that's going to be able to be deleted for the canon. Maybe he hasn't been formally put in the canon yet, as you can see. But it's going to eventually happen, mainly because he's going to stay around. You know, they, they, they used to make a joke a long time ago that, you know, if, um, if you have a belief system and, and it's around less than 100 years, it's a cult. And anything after 100 years, when it becomes more organized, then it becomes a religion. So you might want to say that uh, about Bukowski in some ways, too. You know what I mean? 
He still has a cult following. It's pretty big, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But um, as time goes by, he's going to become part of the establishment in terms of the type of style. Once we understand more about what that was, I've really kind of give you some hints of what I think it was and that what I think scholars are going to find. And, and of course, we're also going to find, you know, the, the contradictions, just like all writers have, uh, that uh, at least in his particular case, they're not, they're, one, they're not ones full of malice or, or hypocrisy. I, I really think that in many instances, you know, they're, they're either innocent or, or, or functions of some of his dysfunction and maybe even offshoots of, uh, of some of his uh, aberrant uh, personality, uh, depression, or, you know, even, even the alcohol use. So they're a, a strange combination of all that. But he definitely is a, a person that... Uh, we should, we should give a second look into. We should definitely look at what he had to say about the world. Don't forget, folks. If you want to know something about the human condition or even the world, all right, you can't just rely on, on the saints, okay? Not to say that the saints don't have something important to say because they do. But if you want to have a full perspective about your human condition, well, you got to also listen to what the sinners have to say, too, and put that all together. It gives you the full picture, just like you can't just listen to women and not listen to men or the other way around. You know, you can't just listen to men and I don't care about the other. No, you're not going to have a full picture of life or the world if you're not listening to what both genders have to say about things. Well, it's really the same thing as well about about philosophy of human condition and about the world. All right. So. If you want to listen to the saints, and you could probably consider like Frost a saint, if you want to put it that way. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. I think other people who, who read him will probably say the same thing. Uh, uh, and then you can say the, the sinner like Bukowski. You, you have to listen to both of them. Yeah, they're in different corners of the room. Of course. They're different to everything. But it does not mean that they were not trying to engage with themselves with you and with the world. So there's something that they're leaving behind for us, not just their work. There is something else left there that we can we can learn, we can take from, we can use and become better ourselves. Maybe in some instances, you know, avoid some of those things. I mean, I think really in life and as a writer, you know, th there's as many things to avoid saintly as there are to avoid sin, sitter-like. So... Maybe we can learn to uh, uh, grasp or, or avoid certain things from, from both sides of, of the picture. But let's just look at it that way. I really think that we'll have more of a, a fuller picture of how we can go about things with ourselves and our art and in the world. Until next time, folks, God bless. This is Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. That was episode 144, Classic Spotlight Series, Thoughts on Charles Bukowski. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.